0: Anyway, my name is Riggs. I'm an alcoholic. I got sober April 1st, 2013. It's not a joke. It's just the day that my, um, that Gary picked because we couldn't figure out when I stopped drinking and lying. Well, I didn't stop lying right away, but I stopped drinking in March at some point. Um, my home group is Change Agents. We meet on Sundays and Thursdays. This is a great reason to skip to be here with y'all. Um, It is an honor to be asked to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a large portion of my life where you shouldn't have asked me to do anything, and definitely a large portion which I avoided doing anything and being held accountable by anyone in any place. Um, Essentially, I'll tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Um, I was talking to my wife about this. So There's a Solution holds a very special place for me. Um, I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not want to be here. It was free. That's why I came. Um, I met a guy named Kevin. And he invited me to come to this meeting back when it was in Holly Springs. And he was like, oh, we'll get there early and uh, we'll set up and then we go eat. And I was like, I he was like, just come on, man, just do it. And, and I thought it was really weird, but I worked at the Holly Springs Walmart when I first got sober. I was a manager, so it wasn't a far drive, obviously. I got early. It wasn't awkward. I was very welcomed. Not one of you knew me, but you acted like I belonged there. I helped set up chairs. We went over across the street. You bought my dinner, even though I had money in my pocket. I mean, like, it was one of those places where I was like, oh, okay. I'm not a weirdo in a room. Like, there was a, a feeling of welcomeness and belonging that I got at this meeting first, um, and then I started to find an Alcoholics Anonymous when I stopped thinking about me so damn much. Um, so I appreciate you all, um, and there are a lot of people in this room that I greatly respect and admire. Um, and if it weren't for you guys meeting on Thursdays, I'd tell people to come here on Thursdays too. But they belong at Change Agents instead. <laughs> so um, I am not. I'm just like every other alcoholic man. I felt weird. I felt awkward. I felt depressed. Um, I felt uneasy. Um, I was like a super weird, depressed kid at by ten. Um, My parents wanted me to see psychologists and stuff, but since my other brother had bigger issues, they sent him instead of me. Um, You know, and it was like, there's a couple of divorces early in my life, so I attributed most of what bothered me as to these divorces. Um, I thought that was kind of like why I was the way I was. Um, My biological mother, when I was 10, she got divorced the second time. She moved me and my brother to... uh, North Carolina, and she stopped calling or showing pretty much. And so that's like a thing. I carried that like a cross and I pulled it out and I utilized it as a weapon in the family that I did have. Um, my stepmother, I called her mom right away cause I knew there was something was wrong with Debbie and that I wasn't going to go back, but I still used this mom thing as like this weapon and I used it with women and I used it in my own family. Um, And I thought it's what made me who I was. And it's not true. Like, my anxiety, like, my ability to be a social chameleon, I fit in with any group that I hung out with long enough. I can change the way I can talk. I can develop an accent within two sentences so I sound like you. Um, It's offensive sometimes. I understand that actually now. Um, My daughters have told me that's offensive. That... You don't develop someone's accent because you're talking to them, but I so much need you to like me that I'll do whatever it takes for you to like me. I don't have to like me because that's already a given, right? Like I already look in the mirror and I know I suck. I already know that I was less than. I already felt all those things. So what I was always trying to do was get some type of outside validation from other people. I started smoking at an early age. I started drugs at a very early age. Um, The first time I got intoxicated is definitely evidence that I'm an alcoholic because We were camping in the Florida Keys, and my dad gave me root beer schnapps, and I got hammered. And I started walking around with my brother to go to the restroom, and that problem of less on the inside was gone. I felt okay on the inside. I was like, good. And then I realized that what had made me feel that good was the big giant cigar and the alcohol. And so I was going to get those things as fast and as often as possible. And if that meant I had to lie, cheat, and steal to do it, I did it. I did. I lied, cheat, and stealed all the way through to get to it as fast and as often as I could. It um, wasn't easy, obviously, as a teenager on a military base, um, but it was possible. So that was good news. By the time I was 19, um, I had been working in restaurants. I was already belly up to a bar. I had a bar that I went to on a regular basis with all these other waiters, and it turns out in restaurants that... Other substances are just as easy to get a hold of than they were in high school. And then going to a bar was really easy. I couldn't even celebrate my birthday at that bar when I was 21, but I had a great time. Alcohol wasn't very punitive to me. Um, the things that it cost me, I was okay with. Like, I didn't get along with my parents anymore. Who cares? I don't need them. I'm a grown man. You know, I don't talk to my brothers that often. Well, who cares? They're jerks. You know, like, I, I could dismiss... People from my life and my thinking in an instant. It did not bother me because as long as I was going to get drunk and have a good time, then it was good. If you wanted to be on the ride, great. If you don't want to pay for a ticket on the merry-go-round, you got nothing to offer me. Then you're good. You can get the hell off and get the hell out of the way. I did that consistently for a long period of time. I got a, you know, I got like a DUI. Um, Let's see. Well. There's a couple of wrecked cars in there where my dad would pick me up and he was like, how do they not feel sobriety test you? He's like, I can smell it. And I was like, I don't know. And he said, man, you fall into the shit and come out smelling more like a rose than anybody I'd know. He said, one day it's going to catch up with you. And I was like, it hasn't yet. Like that was my thought process. It hasn't yet. You know, I mean, I remember my father telling me, he's like, you can do anything you want as long as you're willing to pay the price. And I thought, well, that is a wonderful way to live my life. I was willing to pay the price. It's not a crime if you don't get caught. There's no victim if they don't know if they are. And that's how I did things for a long period of time. I got a DUI in my early 20s. I considered it circumstantial um, based on where I had kept my cigarettes had I not swerved to get them. So that's why. Never mind the fact that I'm legally intoxicated. But driving drunk was not a... It's not something I'm proud of, by the way, obviously, but it was not something that I was afraid to do. I did it consistently. Like, I I have taken more people's lives into my hands than I could probably think of in the amount of times that I've driven intoxicated or on other substances or on a cocktail. Um, But that first DUI, there was this, it was a long time ago, I'm old enough that this was like 20 years ago, and it wasn't as difficult as it is, but you had to go to this weekend class and this uh, guy, Saturday and Sunday, you had to be there at 8 a.m., he locked the doors at 8. If you were late, you had to start the class over. So Friday night, I'm at the bar, driving on a suspended license, I'm driving, I don't care. I go to the bar, I make it to the class on Friday on Saturday at 8 o'clock, good to go. Sit through it, the guy tells his story about you know, his alcoholism and tells his story about joining an AA, he tells us all these little escapades, and then... Get out. Go to the bar Saturday night. Didn't make it to class early on Sunday. Missed it, so I had to repeat. An, I had to repeat a class for something I wasn't even supposed to be doing that I was already doing again. And that's just how I continued to live my life. I mean, I did this all the way through my twenties. I tell people like I, I waited tables and party like a rock star. That's what I did for a long period of time. Um, somehow, in some way, shape, or form, right around twenty-seven. I met who is now my wife. And I, I don't know why she likes me. still um, like, I don't know what happened. Um, she says, that, like, I saved her at some nightclub from some guy that was trying to dance on her. It was like the act of chivalry. Um, <laughs> but what I do remember was, and it, like it was like, in my head, I was like, I'm going to clean up for her. I'm going to stop for her because... My wife is not an alcoholic. She doesn't drink. She never smoked pot. She doesn't like to smoke. Cig- she smoked cigarettes, but didn't do a good job of it. Like, she she was not anything like me. Her parents were still married. She seemed like she was like this wonderful person. I was like, I will clean up for her. I will do that. That's what will happen. And we we got married. And I said I do. And I said I do while I was intoxicated at the at the boat po- up there, standing in front of everybody. I started drinking scotch at 10 o'clock that morning. We didn't get married till 2. I was intoxicated when I said I do. It still makes it legally binding, but I can tell you that when I said I do, I renegotiated the terms of that relationship immediately thereafter. Like everyone else in my life, you were going to do it the way I wanted. You were going to let me to get away with the thing I wanted to get away with, and it didn't work. Um, It did work, actually. Sorry, I take that back. Um, But I'll tell you... One of the most, what word would I use? Gross things, grotesque, ugly behaviors that I ever committed was Ryan and I were in the living room and we were arguing about when I would come home on the night that I was leaving. And it was like how many nights I was going out and I I wasn't really good at coming back, um, like for a day. I wasn't good about calling. I was really good at blacking out and passing out. That's what I was good at, right? And so she was like, well, you need to come home. We got this tomorrow. And I negotiated while she held our infant daughter on her hip. I negotiated how many nights that I would stay at home. That's what I did. I negotiated it. And I got her to agree that I would stay at home three nights a week. Um, I'm not, and it worked. She did it. Um, The bad news was that drinking around her was difficult because at this point, I mean, I'm 30-some years old, and I mean, I am I drink at least a half a fifth a night on a consistent basis or more. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly expensive habit. Um, and so when I started drinking at home, I had to take care of all the recycling. We lived in Michigan, and they give you like 10 cents a can. And so I had to take care of all the recycling. Um, I had to take all the trash out because I had to put the bottles on the bottom. Um, I had to drink the same type of whiskey so that... When she'd opened the cabinet, it didn't look like there was new flavors in there. Um, I, I did some shots a couple of times, and she came in the kitchen. She said, are you drinking shots by yourself? And I was like, well, I just did one. And she was like, that's not what people do. And I was like, well, then I guess I don't drink from shot glasses anymore. I drink straight from bottles. And so that's what I would do. Like I, I did whatever it took to get away with it so you wouldn't see the truth. That I was miserable at this point. Um, but not so miserable and ready to stop. I got a second DUI while married, came home. This second DUI, it's much later in life, so it involves some jail time. Um, I've already been to jail before that. By the way, I've never been in the back of a seat of a cop car sober. I have only been to jail once sober, and that's to serve time for a a DUI. So um, I, I know exactly how handcuffs fit, I know what cop cars look like. I know what jail smells like. I know what county smells like. Uh, um, At this point, um, she says, hey, finally she drew a line. She said, i got to stop drinking. I was like, you're right. i got to stop drinking. It totally made sense to me. I blew whatever, .28 on that last DUI or something ridiculous. Um, So I was like, I will. I will stop. And I took all my stuff and all the bottles and the... Shot glasses and wine glasses, and I brought it over to my buddy's house, and I said, all right, well, you keep this stuff. I'll be back for it. (laughs) And I was. I was back the next day. And what I just decided to do for the next three to four years was to lie to my wife like a miserable scumbag that I was. I got away with it as much as possible. She would catch me. We would go through this game where I would apologize. I would make lofty promises. I would get chewed out by my dad. My dad would tell me like, Hey, if you can't get sober and you can't be in a liar, he was like, then why don't you just pack your shit? I'll take care of your kids. You'd think that would inspire me. Doesn't, there's a lot of crying. There's a lot of fights. Um, but at no point do I really, I mean, I stopped drinking maybe three or four months at a time. Maybe that's about the longest I could stay sober. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, after that second DUI, um, Turns out that it's anonymous, so I lied and started signing the sheet and just driving around drinking for two hours while I told Ryan I was going to meetings and I gave the lawyer the sheet. They don't don't know who's in this room, by the way, so if anybody's getting a sheet signed, you could leave. Um, I don't suggest it. (laughs) The story's going to get better, so you might want to stay for the rest. But you can fake names on those sheets and no one will find out. But... um, it doesn't get any better; it only gets worse. We moved from Detroit um, down here to North Carolina in 2009 in the summer. This is when we moved that summer. Um, she got here before me to try and find work because in 2009 the lights were already dim in Detroit. Things were already difficult. If anybody remembers the recession, it already had hit Detroit in 2008, so we were already hurting for money and. I mean, I got here with less than 500 bucks in the bank, but she got she left before me for about two weeks, which meant I went on a two week bender. It's really what that looks like is a two week bender. Um, and I get down here, and I looked around, and it was hot, and it's always green. There's not a straight road in carrying Apex to save your fricking life. I couldn't figure out where I was. I was used to Detroit. It's like a grid, you know. The roads run north and south and east and west, like, and I hated it. I hated everything about the state. You can't find shit from the road because there's trees in the way. I, I complained about that. It was humid it was humid more than I thought it was. And this is from a guy that, I lived in Miami when I was a kid, but I, like, I hated everything about this place. Um, and it really wasn't true. What, I, what it had happened was I hated myself at that point because I was getting caught a lot. I knew I was a liar. I knew I was a cheat. I knew I was a thief. I essentially had no relationships. There was one person left trying to help me. And, and I wasn't even letting her help me. Um, I was just trying to not get caught by her. Um, and I got away with it for a couple more years in North Carolina. And then I got... The last time I drank, I can tell you that story because I think that's more evidence to suggest that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, a friend of mine came down to visit. We were going to go to this bar, and I was, we were going to watch an MMA fight. I don't even watch sports. I don't even watch MMA, but I was like, "Sure, I'll join you." And I was like, "All right, I'm not going to drink." I could feel like I was going to get caught soon. There was some. It was like the wind had blown the wrong way. The goosebumps were up. I was like, the jig's up soon. Don't drink tonight. Okay, sweet tea and nachos. That's what I'm going to do. Sweet tea and nachos. I sit down at the bar, sit next to Herb. Sweet tea and nachos. Boom, good to go. Fight starts. Herb's drinking beers. It's one of those beers, one of those places, like 200 bottles and like 85 taps. And he's like, oh, this one tastes like blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, nah, man, I'm not drinking tonight. And then he's like, oh, my God. He's like, this one tastes like chocolate. I was like, What? You guys know what happened, right? <laughs> I said, what And he said, "Tastes like chocolate." I was like, "Let me get a sip." And I was like, and I was like, "Can I get one of those in a shot of Jameson?" And that's it. I left with a $150, $125 bar tab. Sweet tea and nachos do not cost $125. They were not golden nacho chips. It was not fancy sweet tea from some place in China. I got completely obliterated. And in fact, had no problems being completely obliterated. New exactly what that night looked like. We left. I was like, well hey, I'm already drunk. Let's go get some more beer. We sat in a parking lot. I drank more beer. And when I walked in the front door, Ryan came around the corner. She looked at me. I looked at her and I was like, that's it. There it is. I got caught. But the difference was um not that she had come to Al Anon, but she did that thing where she was like do something or leave. And I could tell you that it still upsets me to this day that it was something she had to say, but it was true. She had to tell me that. And I I was like, well, what do I do? And she says, I don't care. She was like, do something or leave. She was like, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you go to therapy, you go to group, you go to AA. But she was like, you cannot stay here and just not drink. That doesn't work. And she was like, so do something. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it was because it was free. Um, I didn't think it would work. I had kind of... I had attended before. I had not tried. Um, And I came, and uh, I went to a few meetings, and I thought it was dumb, and people were talking 30 and 30, and people were talking sponsor, and I was reading the steps on the wall, and I had read through all 12 of them, and I thought I could do the majority of them on my own. I didn't need a sponsor. I thought maybe somewhere around 4 I would need some guy that I could talk to, Um, but I wasn't going to get a sponsor, and I went to uh, CYP, and... These guys wouldn't let you leave. Like you guys don't let newcomers leave. Like they would corner me on the sidewalk and catch me there, man. Like I don't know if I smelled like a new guy or smelled like booze still, or like I looked paranoid. Um, Jonathan Smith will tell you I was angry, which is true. Um, I met him early in recovery, and and I wasn't very. I I think you said I, I told people I didn't want to bleep and be there. It was like I think my first sentence probably in a meeting, and but. This gentleman kept asking me if I had a sponsor, and he finally said, well, you're waiting for one to fall out of the sky? And I was like, man, I was like, well, why don't you be my sponsor? And he was like, well, call me. And the trick was, and I'll teach you this trick because I think I still use it. He was the only guy that I actually had a phone number for any of you gave me your phone number, I lit my screen up and I pretended to type it. I didn't put shit in my phone. But he was like looking over my phone like nosy and he was like, now text me, text me your name. And I was like, fine. So it was the only number in Alcoholics Anonymous that I had, about 40 of you had tried. I had two meeting schedules with all your phone numbers on them. I had thrown those away. Like I was doing whatever it took to not be in contact with Alcoholics Anonymous other than my (laughs) voluntary attendance to a meeting which is I thought all I needed to do. And I did, call, I did call Gary, and we met. And he said that I should go to uh, five or six meetings a week. And he said that I should call ten guys a day. And I was like, well, I don't have anybody's phone numbers. He's like, well, you better start getting them. And he was like, you need to get a service position. You need to get a home group. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, mean, I had no idea what we are talking about. And he said a home group is a meeting that you, you help to grow. It is a group in which you believe is fundamentally helping alcoholics, and you join that meeting, and you try to make sure it opens up on time, that there's coffee, that the chairs are set up, that people are greeted, that people are thanked for coming. And he gave me all these things that we were supposed to do as a home group member, and I was like, well, I don't, I, well what's yours? And he was like, well, it's CYP. And I was like, well, then that's mine. I just picked it because it was easy. I picked it because I didn't know what to do, and I just watched him. I did what he did. We met after CYP on Wednesday nights. Um... I was eager. I was on fire at that point. Um, my life was burning to the ground still. Somehow getting sober, there was less money in the bank. She was even madder than she was. Like, the job was worse. I got on a final warning at work somehow. Like, I don't... It was like getting sober was, like, worse. I was... Felt way better, like, not drinking. But, like, somehow attending AA, my life was just falling apart. At least it appeared to be that way. And And I remember, like... We would end the meeting, and I'd be like, Gary, let's sit down. He was like, well, we gotta, we got to clean up. And I was like, man, I need to sit down. He was like, we need to clean up. We need to thank people. We need a fellowship. And he wouldn't sit down with me at 9 o'clock. Not at 9.02. We sometimes sat down at 9.30, sometimes 9.40. I mean, that drove me absolutely bonkers. But, <laughs> but what I did get was a lot of phone numbers. What I did get was a lot of good conversations with other men in Alcoholics Anonymous. What I did get was the fellowship that I didn't think I needed but was beginning to give me that insight. Um, I mean, there's guys in this room that were sitting in that room, and they had been sober for a little while when I got here, thank God, because they were really good men, you know. And so I did that, and we met, and we read the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and he told me to bring a highlighter or an ink pen, and I didn't understand why he asked me to do that. I had already tried to read this book. It didn't seem like there was anything pertinent in it the first time. Bill's story was extremely confusing. The language seemed like it was very dated. Um, I didn't know why I was going to highlight crap in this book. And it was really big. Like, why is it so big? And and it's because there's a bunch of stories. And when I sat down with my sponsor, he was like, well, we're just going to read the first 164 pages. And I was like, well, what's the rest of the book? He goes, it's the stories of alcoholics. He goes, this is for you to identify. He goes, when you get to the end of the day and you can't fall asleep, he was like, why don't you read some of these stories and see if you can identify with the men and women that are in the back of that big book. And and I I had a hard time sleeping back then, obviously, right? Most of us do when we first get sober. I either cried myself to sleep or just got so angry I got tired and fell asleep. But nothing else ever happened at the end of the day because I I knew things weren't going to get better or at least I believed I was wrong. They did get better. But so I read those stories in the back of the big book and he and I read the first 164 pages and it was, it started to make sense of the doctor's opinion, which damn, that's really early in the book, by the way, if you haven't read it yet, (laughs) like things started to click that had not clicked before. And I had been going to meetings for about a month and a half before I got a sponsor. But for some reason, sitting with him and him pausing every once in a while and trying to explain words to me and explain what the book was talking about, like that identification started to take place. A little bit of my guard let down. I would tell him a little bit of what was going on. Um, sometimes I would even tell him what I was actually scared of. You know, Mostly what I needed to do was complain about my life. That was the majority of what I did. I, I, I really wasn't, I wasn't letting anyone in. I just wanted to let you know what was wrong. And there's a big difference between those two things. Letting you know what's wrong is not me reaching out for help. It's just me wanting you to co-sign to be like, yeah, you should feel that way. It, yes, it is wrong that she talks to you like that. And yes, it is wrong that your boss is expecting you to do your job properly all day long and you can't leave things unlocked. Like, I mean, that's what I needed. And he wasn't offering that to me. Um, I remember a few things in early recovery. I remember we got to the third step. And he was like, oh, hold on. We're going to do this with some other guys. And I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, we're going to go to this this church up the street. It's St. Michael's. It's up from where the old tack used to be. It's in Kerry." And so Gary got like three or four other guys. And after CYP, we drove up, and we kneeled around St. Michael. I am not a Catholic. I had a lot of religious objections when I got here. Well, organized religious objections. All of it, all the way across. But... <laughs> And and we kneeled down and we said the third step prayer and then he turned on his cell phone light and he started reading right come, what comes after that and he was like now you gotta go get a notebook tonight and start I was like man it's like 10:30 at night he was like yeah start tonight and he was like and if you want to drink you gotta get all these guys to meet you at the bar. <laughs> One of them was Ian. He had been sober for like six years at that point. Michael Viceri was there. There was a whole, there was, I can't remember who else was there. I was like, well, what are the chances these guys are going to come to a bar? And he was like, well, then you don't get to drink. And I did. I got a notebook and I started on the fourth step. That's what it ended up, right? Like I didn't, I didn't really like, I mean, it did feel different saying that third step prayer. I met men in Alcoholics Anonymous at that point that were starting to tell me different prayers that I could read because I wasn't good at that. That wasn't something that made sense. I can pray when I'm crying, and I can pray when I'm in jail, and I can pray when somebody's mad at me, but these people were teaching me to pray for God to help me to just stay sober, and that, that fundamental, just simple ask is kind of how I approached it, and then I got introduced to things like the St. Francis prayer and many other ideas about what prayer and meditation could look like from a lot of men in AA, and I'm glad that that happened because it was very confusing for me. I um, did the fourth step. And I remember when I did my fifth step, um, I was driving home by myself and I was driving home with the windows down and I was smiling. And I was like, I didn't notice it at first, but I realized I was smiling by myself. And it was because after we did our fifth step, we did six and seven right there. And then we talked about the amends list and I walked away with a sense that there might be a chance, albeit slim, that I might be able to fix this shit show of a life that I had been living up until that moment. That for some reason, something that he, we, we had done there at that place, and the things that we had talked about, and the things that we talked about, I was going to be doing next, seemed to give me this, this feeling that was like, there's a chance. And for me, a chance was better than anything I had ever felt. And I think that's why I was happy. Um, I did. I mean, I started to make amends right away. Um, I had to make a a trip to Michigan, so I went on an amends tour. (laughs) I mean, I went, I I got in the car by myself, I drove to Michigan, I made amends to my parents, to my mom and my dad, to one of my brothers that lives there, to a bunch of old drinking buddies. You know, uh, one of those buddies, I tried to contact him, and he said he didn't want to hear from me, he didn't care. You know, I did my part. If John ever wants to talk to me, I'm ready to make amends to him, right? Like, that's what that looks like. I mean, it's been a long time. You probably won't, but that's okay, you know. Um, I came back home, and I, we started to read 10 and 11. And then Gary called me one night, or actually I called him, and he was like, hey, I think you should put your hand up. And I was like, for what? He <laughs> was like, to help people. I was like, I don't think I'm equipped to do that. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not ready for that. And he was like, you're, you're not going to ever be ready. He was like, but you need to sponsor somebody. I, I was like, well, we haven't finished the steps. He goes, you have essentially gotten to this place where it's time to start working step 12. He's like, we'll read the rest of the text. I'm like, man, there's like three chapters left. He was like, I know. He was like, just we're, go ahead and start helping some people. And he's right. It is the highlight. It is the thing that puts this thing in perspective. I shared this at Medoc. Um, my my life when I sit down with another alcoholic and we talk about what sobriety looks like and he talks about the condition and we talk about what we're going to do, I can get in my car with a sense of gratitude um, Alcoholics Anonymous gives me a sense of purpose because the men in AA that I help, I don't get anything from it man it was one of the, like, I'm not transactional with people and that's a, a unique thing, like most of my life everyone was a cash register I'm either stealing from it or getting from it right, or paying for it, and sponsorship, there is nothing other than I get to see another man work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get to help somebody go through that process of, of spiritual rebirth. That thing that happened for me, that, that new relationship with a creator that I call God. Um, I've attended church since then. I read all kinds of different books that I used to fight and argue against. I mean, there, there are things that I started to do in AA, like um, I remember I was about six months sober and Ryan said, I think you're drinking. And I was like, what? She said, I think you're drinking. I was like, well, you can search the car. And I go through this, you know, you could search the car. You can look to my phone and go through the whole, I haven't drank in six months and I'm working the goddamn step. Da-da-da. You know, I go through this whole thing with her and I, and I go outside and I called my, I called Gary and he was like, man, he was like. He's like, how fast do you think you deserve credit for not being, like, being a truth teller? He's like, I mean, you've been sober for six months. He goes, haven't you done that before? I was like, well, three or four before. And he was like, yeah. He's like, you, you haven't done anything. He was like, people will measure you by your actions. Your words don't mean anything anymore. He was like, you are a liar. You are a cheat. You are a thief. He was like, the measure of you as a man from here on out will be based on what you do. It will not be based on what you say. And it was a hard lesson for me to learn that that was the truth. Um, My wife was attending church at the time. And the irony of it is the pastor was giving sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And he had said in the sermon, I I wouldn't go to church back then. I had been sober for a while, but I wouldn't go. Um, And he said, if you're praying about something, you can't give up on it. And so about 10 months sober... I'm starting to sponsor other guys. I'm starting to do some things. But my marital life and my home life still doesn't look well. Um, and it shouldn't. It's OK that it doesn't. I'm, I'm close to almost accepting that it's not going to look the way it was supposed to. And I was sitting outside of the TAC, and I was complaining about it to Michael. And uh, <laughs> we. this whole conversation was really cold that night, colder than tonight. and. Couldn't feel my toes, but I'm still talking about it. I'm really upset. And he, he asked me one question, and he said, have you ever done something for your wife just because you love her? And that's that was my answer. I didn't have one. I hadn't, hadn't done that. I was like, well, that sucks. And he was like, he was like try that. Just do it because you love her. Not to get into her pants, not to make her happy, not to get her forgiveness because you just... Just do it because you love her. And and I went home, and she and I had a conversation, and, and things started to change there. And it was because I was 10 months sober. I had been going to a ton of meetings. I was helping people. I was talking about to her, what I was doing in Alcoholics Anonymous, and there was that slow little, she let her guard down just a little bit, and just a little bit got better, you know. I, I continued to stay sober for several years. I got a few minutes. I'll tell you a couple of these more recent events is just... Um, you know, you. I I didn't think that I would be sober this long. This wasn't a plan. I didn't plot this out. This wasn't as long as I thought it was going to work out. Um, there were many times in early recovery that I thought I could just pack a bag and drive out into the middle of the country and I'll just get a job at some random gas station or something and I'll just disappear and I think the world will be better. Um, and it's not true. Um, I, I have two teenage daughters now. Um, I've had to learn a lot about how you, you, I still, I mean, I've fathered them and I can't make them do what I want. (laughs) I've had a deep conversation with Susie Donahue about this. Like, what do I want my relationship to look like? And it's the same answer that I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to be present, available, reliable, and I want someone that you can count on. And I was not doing that by trying to have my children not be like me or be like a certain thing or to do a certain thing a certain way. And that's what I was working on. Like, what I was working on was not having a relationship with my kids. What I was working on was making sure they wouldn't call me when they needed me, you know, because I was trying to corral them. And so, you know, I've had to change the way I act as a father. I've had to change the way I act with my family. I mean, I have since since getting sober, like... Um, I was, It's about four years ago, my dad called me and he said, Hey, I, I need to talk to you. And I said, all right, that's fine. And we weren't really talking that much at this point in time. My father and I, not with any of my, but both of my parents, really both my mom and dad, they, they weren't doing it the way I wanted. And I wouldn't do it the way they wanted. And, and I couldn't set aside my own ego and my own pride to try to have some type of good relationship with them. But my dad calls me. And it was on a video call, which is weird. And I was like, why are we on a video call? And he was like, I need to talk to you. And he says, he says, your, your mother's sick. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, your mother, your mother has Lou Gehrig's. And I was like, well, that's not fair. You know, like out of all the people to get something, it should have been me. I earned it. You know, out of all the people, she was the better out of all four of us. I have two other brothers, you know, and, uh, So we talked for a while and I didn't know what to do. It was Friday night and I was supposed to meet a sponsee. So I put my shoes on and I met the sponsee. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't talk about it yet. I was too upset. Met the sponsee. Then I called my sponsor on the way home. You know, that's what I did. And then um, I decided I wanted to go home to see my mom, like about a week later. And so I get the plane ticket and I'm going to leave. And Michael comes over to the house and he brings in the big book and he reads the chapter Working With Others the night before I'm going to leave. And as he started reading it, I was like, why is he reading this shit? Like, my mom's dying. I'm going home to see my mom. I need to cry. I need to... And he, he read Working With Others. And then when I got on the plane, it made sense. I was going to work with others. Like, there was something I was going to need to do differently when I got to Michigan. So... And anyways, um, I changed and set aside my ego and set aside the vanity and set aside the differences and how they weren't doing it right. And I tried to do things differently with my parents. My mother has since passed. You can, I stayed sober through that. I've been fired in the last four years from a job and I stayed sober and we all went through COVID. We all stayed sober. Holy shit. Like there weren't meetings in person for a while. I thought I was going to lose my damn mind. You know, I mean we met in a parking lot for over a year as change agents. um y'all had that little hot shack <laughs> Damn, that building was hot, <laughs> but you guys met in person, right? you had a i mean we, we we did that because and what I found out was like yeah i'm not I'm not a meeting maker anymore, but but I do need face to face time with alcoholics. I do need to sit with people to, to look into their eyes and to hear what's actually really happening. I mean, I met with sponsees right away. There was a lot of things through that whole process that I learned a lot different in recovery and that, that fundamentally, like, I, I don't do well with the digital thing and all that other. Not- and if it works for you, God bless you. Good luck. Um, I, I need to, I need to shake your hand. I need to hug you. I need to be able to tell I love you face to face. I do that with any sponsee. There's only one guy I sponsor via the phone. He's a truck driver. That's it. That's the only guy. Everyone else, they're like, well, I can text you. The texting don't work, man. I don't, I don't answer. Te- I don't I don't. I know with nothing emotional in a text. I have sponsees calling me directly, because that's what my sponsor had me do. So a lot of that, those things have, have grown. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous has has fundamentally changed me as a person. I have a relationship with with God that I I rely on for my strength, that I rely on for my courage, that I rely on for my guidance and how I should go through every single day that I wake up. Like, if I'm at work, there are spiritual principles that I can work by. When I'm in my family, there are spiritual principles that I can live by. And when I'm an alcoholics anonymous, there are spiritual principles. What's really weird and freaky, and it took me a while to figure it out, they're all the same ones none of them are different it's love service kindness accountability responsibility it's all the same ones it's really weird you can do that stuff at work that's not something i was really good at my pocket strings were really important to me how big my wallet was or slender it was really mattered to me and it turns out that money doesn't save me money doesn't fix me Um, it turns out trying to salvage something out of money is is only going to cause me more disruption um, that's a longer story. I'll save it for another night. Um, um, I will leave you with these two. These are two quotes that, I, that I've that i heard recently. There's one. It's unknown. And it says, there is one place that I'm guaranteed not to find God. And that is in my thinking. Um, and then I read this one this morning. And it's by Epica- Epictetus. And he says, but I haven't had any... But I haven't at any time been hindered in my will nor forced against it. And how is this possible? I have bound up my choice to act with the will of God. God wills that I be sick, such as such my will. He wills that I should choose something, so do I. He wills that I reach for something or something to be given to me, I wish for the same. What God doesn't will, I do not wish for. And uh, I, mean, I read that this morning, man. That's not some stuff I used to do. I didn't wake up and read and pray did and before i went to bed make sure i thank god for what my life looked like or to pray for other people for them to get sober or stay sober or to have a an easier day like that is not something that i i have done that is something that alcoholics anonymous has changed and god has changed in me so thank you all